it's not just a story about slavery, it's about slavery and freedom. It's also about that undeniable and unrepressible urge for freedom that African Americans demonstrated. Welcome to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan, and today I'm wondering about what we remember and how and why with a guy who is so bright and prolific in his work. His name is Kevin Young. He is, in addition to being the poetry editor at The New Yorker, the director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C., that spectacular place where I went with PBS to film a conversation. It was really an honor to sit with Kevin in that place and talk about the many layers of the American experience and how we memorialize the things we've done. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. If you love listening to true stories from people all around the world, then we have the perfect recommendation for you, the Moth Podcast. Each episode features people from moth events around the globe, sharing diverse and honest stories of love, resilience, change, heartbreak, chance encounters, unbelievable calamities, and everything in between. Episodes drop weekly. Find The Moth Podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states and situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Welcome back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan. Artists, teachers, and people who design museums wrestle with a Herculean task how to get people to feel something they haven't experienced, how to fill spaces such that something shifts and they think and act in new and better ways. Kevin Young is a celebrated poet and author who has written 15 books of poetry and prose, including Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post Facts, and Fake News, and another book called The Gray Album, which won the Penn Open Book Award. He's also the director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, a monument that was first proposed 101 years ago by Black veterans who hoped the country would remember their service. Finally, five years ago, the 400,000-square-foot museum was opened to offer a more complete and true story of America. I got a chance to sit down at the museum with Kevin as part of my PBS series, Tell Me More, and we spoke about his background, his literary work, and his position at the nation's only museum devoted exclusively to the documentation of African-American life, history, and culture. I was also lucky enough to get a personally guided tour, something I'll never forget. Here's my conversation with Kevin Young. This place was a long time coming. The idea for it came up, I don't know, 101 years before it started. (laughs) That's right. 
What were some of the debates along the way? What were some of the biggest decisions that had to be sorted out before you could begin? The wish on the part of the veterans and others who, 50 years after the end of the Civil War, uh, asked, demanded, uh, mm -hmm. marched for a memorial to uh, African Americans and Black folks who fought in that war. I think we're really trying to say we're here. You know, we've been here, and this is our contribution. And they wanted that reflected on the National Mall and. Since then, I think, you know, it's become a century's dream. And to see John Lewis uh, fight for this, um, to see George W. Bush sign it into law, and to see the way that this uh, became a, a reality, uh, it's been a really powerful century. I think of it as taking, you know, 15 years to build physically, but also 100 years before that. And to me, I, I think the debates are really around the centrality of African-American culture to American culture, mm -hmm. the black experience as part, and in fact, central to understanding American history. So were there people who said it shouldn't be its own museum, it should be inside the National Museum of History? I think so. Uh, I think mostly about how now, since it's been open, people understand the ways that the story had to be told in its fullest form. Right. Um, and that it- Like that museum is no way, in no way big enough to contain <laughs> this museum, right? Right, in, in a way, uh, we're across the street from each other, we can see each other, it's part of that vista, and I think of that as symbolic, just the same way that we can see the Washington Monument, uh, and that the angle of the facade, our corona, as we call it, the crown, uh, is exactly the same angle as the top of the Washington Monument. Oh, that's And that good. kind of reflection, I think, is really important. I thought it was interesting. Someone said that it shifted the um, center of gravity in <laughs> D.C. And, and on the mall, and it put the story right in the middle. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because someone said to me, Oh, is, is that the building that looks like a spaceship? <laughs> I said, uh, well, it's not a spaceship. It's a crown. It's based on African and African-American ironwork. It has this long history. But then I was like, well, it is thinking about the future as well as the past, you know. And it is thinking about what I've come to call living history and the ways that we are living through history. History is living in us. And we have to understand the ways that it's happening around us. How do we record that? How do we collect it? And how do we help people understand how we got here, but also where we're going? Well, that gets to this really interesting thing that I read that said that they polled the public and they polled scholars and said, what should be here? What should the emphasis be? And both groups said the number one thing that you should include is slavery. And both groups said the number one thing you should not include is slavery. I mean, the idea that you could not tell the story, uh, <laughs> including slavery, seems silly now, especially because of how well the museum told it. I got to walk through the museum before uh, being director when this was long uh, off in the future. And I was walking with my young son, who was 13 at the time, and to see the ways that uh, the story is told. Because remember, it's not just a story about slavery. It's about slavery and freedom. It's also about that undeniable and unrepressible urge for freedom that African Americans demonstrated. You see all the ways that uh, folks ran away. You know, they self-emancipated themselves constantly. And you also see the ways that slavery was different in different regions. I think that's very important to understand how the low country uh, had very different slavery than Louisiana, where my family's from. But also, alongside it are all the rebellions that often are left out. And so we see the ways that there were constant rebellions, constant tries for freedom and uh or even just rejection of capture like sure. the igbo rebellion where they it was a mass suicide to just sure. say 
we won't do it. Sure. I mean, these instances are proof that the system was so oppressive, but also that the resistance was so continuous. I'm really always amazed at the culture and the world that the enslaved created. And I think what's mm -hmm. powerful about the museum is it tells that story. It tells how they survived, how they innovated, how they were uh, actually skilled labor, uh, mm -hmm. you know, brought for their agricultural prowess. We have slave tags from Charleston. I mean, these are powerful things that tell the stories of how enslaved people were sometimes loaned out to other plantations or they're given uh, freedom to travel a little bit and to understand that little bit of freedom, but that larger freedom that they sought all the time is really powerful. So our first guest ever on Tell Me More was Brian Stevenson, and I wrote him to ask, what should I ask Kevin Young? And he said, ask him about the research, the certification, the validity of the work that went into this place. Well, you know, we've had such luck with these wonderful objects that people kept safe. And it's so important to then authenticate those objects, to research it. And we also go out and do that research. And the historians, the curators, the panel of experts who sit on our board and help us understand this history is really crucial. Part of what we do is preserve it, we research it, we connect to it, we tell its story. But these objects also, to me, tell their own story. Having Harriet Tubman's hymnal, to see her ownership signature in that book, to think of her singing and how much that history is singing to us today is so crucial. Um, but it had to take someone first to save it. And then we're happy to keep it safe and to tell its story and to research it and, and prove its authenticity. It's really important to have that process of understanding, but it's also really important to show that material and let people who visit understand that this is theirs in some way, that we are saving it for the nation. I think you guys own 40,000 objects and you have 3,500 on display. Yes. All of this was kept precious material, documents, papers, handkerchiefs, proof that we were here and everyone does this. <laughs> and in every culture, sure. like, did you guys put out a call for everyone to go to their family trunks to bring forward like the stuff from grandma's attic? There was a call, um, but I also think the call was answered is the, the important thing. I think people were waiting in some way for a safe haven for this material. Where I come from, at least, there's always one family member who's almost the de facto family historian who keeps the thing and says, you can't throw away that cast iron pot, you know? And sometimes that's your only inheritance. It might be seeds from a plant that your grandma grew that you're now growing. Right. Um, that's the kind of inheritance that I think the museum values. And I love seeing it grow in that way. It feels very organic to me uh, as part of this long history, the history of the freedom struggle, but also the history of valuing things not only were we told weren't valuable, but also told didn't exist. You're so interested in story and you're so <laughs> smart about it. And so I was looking at the Grey album. Can you talk about the ways that stories get distorted and the great, terrific, unending need to get it right, to, to find sure. accuracy in a more complete version? Yeah, you know, I was really interested in the Grey Album, my first book of nonfiction, in the ways that... Very cool title, by the way. <laughs> thanks, thanks. Yeah. And I knew DJ Danger Mouse a little bit in Athens, uh, uh, who's 
did the Grey Album sure. where he mashed up uh, Jay-Z and the, the Beatles. I'm and sure so, everybody who watches PBS knows all about Danger yeah, Mouse. Yeah, as you know, <laughs> DJ Danger Mouse. Um, but, you know, he was just uh, a kid in a record store, and I thought he was so great, and I remember buying some of his old mixes. So one of my That's better cool. forward-looking moments. But the book, in a way, didn't come together till I found that title. You know, it had other titles that didn't work. But I was trying to understand that mix and exactly what later uh, I've come to see here, which is so wonderful, which is to see the ways that Black culture was central to American culture and, in fact, helped define American culture. And so that centrality was really important. But I also wanted to understand improvisation and the ways that, right. say, the Negro spirituals uh, sung by the enslaved were also coded and were ways of messages of escape. And so I wanted to see, you know, had that coding continued? Um, and I trace it through the blues and the ways there's all these double meanings, but also all the way down to hip hop and the ways that that's still with us, this need to improvise, but also to code and to uh, what I call story. Because in Louisiana, where my family's from, you couldn't tell an adult, oh, you lie. And you could barely tell yeah. your cousin. You had to say you story, you know, yeah. and that storying. You're fibbing. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, you're yeah. spinning a tall tale. So that storying, I tried to connect uh, from Louis Armstrong and the way his uh, uh, trumpet solo tells a story when he's playing trumpet to the ways we tell stories all the time. And often those kind of folk tales and those bigger-than-life tales are getting at another truth. You know, when Zora Neale Hurston's writing about John Henry or writing about the lies, that's another name for folktales, people telling on the porch in Eatonville, Florida, you're trying to understand that truth they're getting at. Because if you think about it, you couldn't say to the master or the would-be slaveholder, you lie or you story, but you could tell an elaborate animal tale about Br'er Rabbit escaping. And so those kinds of powerful stories stay with you. And then my second book, Bunk, I was trying to understand the bad side of lying and the ways that, in a way, that was a kind of American inheritance. And how do we understand uh, the ways that, you know, faking it till you make it is part of the DNA and how do we get at that? You have to understand the truth of that resilience, that resistance, and that constant striving for freedom, which is very much uh, still with us. I was thinking about all the ways that story serves us, all kinds of people in all kinds of situations, and how it can be this respite, like an imaginary respite. How do you think about the roles that story can play in a person's or in a community's life? Well, I think imagination is so crucial. I mean, uh, this is perhaps self-serving as a poet and a writer, but I also think about the way you have to imagine yourself somewhere else, what I call elsewhere, yeah. in order to transcend and to get there. You had to imagine... Um, the afterlife or what a jubilee would be like in order to run away and cross that river. You know, you sang of the river, then you crossed it and suddenly you're free in the free north. Um, so there is this quality where the imagination is one of the important nations that African Americans are building uh, and building from and with. And that kind of creativity, the cultural inheritance that is so rich that if you say, I can't play the drums, I'm going to play my body. If you say I can't dance and dancing is crossing your feet, I'm going to do everything but cross my feet. And those kinds of inheritances are still with us. And so that's the kind of improvisation and storytelling in a different form, a physical form, that was so important to forms of resistance down through the centuries. So 
I sometimes I think about human nature, which is like, if for sure, it is human nature to oppress and, and corruption is human nature, et cetera. But also, so is imagination. Like we've been given mm-hmm. this gift as human beings to be able to see things that are not yet mm-hmm. and to sort of rise into them. Do you think about human nature a lot when you're in here deciding like how to show the story? Sure, I try to think about the ways that we're not trying to prove humanity of African-Americans. We're trying to exhibit the many ways they uh, exhibited it themselves over the centuries. Um, And so... Because that was the fundamental, that was the opening label, (laughs) was not human. Sure. I mean, uh, not to African-Americans, but (laughs) obviously, um, you know, some aspects of law of understanding of myth um, required that or or sought that. But I think it's important to remember the ways that uh, that was never a doubt, you know, for us. And we always understood the ways that we were human, we had foibles. Uh, If you look at the animal tales or early Zora Neale Hurston or the blues themselves, they tell these stories about how, you know, my head's so hard, I couldn't shoot myself with one bullet. It'd probably take two, uh, to misquote a Langston Hughes poem. Yeah. But the ways that they're trying to understand um, their own frailty as a kind of uh, armor. And I think that's what's powerful about something like the blues, is it's a way that people name their hurt in order to get past it. You know, I'm going to say the worst possible thing about myself in a way. Um, you know, I'm foolish. I, I ain't got no money. Uh, that's true. But I'm going to tell you about uh, what I'm going to do with that feeling, you know, and I'm going to make this song about it, but I'm also going to make you move. There's that great Albert Murray quote. Ah, Albert Murray. That said, we invented jazz and Europeans invented psychoanalysis and we invent what we need. Yeah, sure, sure. So you're a poet. Is that your true love? Is that like at the very bottom? I mean, you do a lot of things. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, I've come to understand that I also approach some of these other things as a poet. You know, writing nonfiction, I'm interested in these leaps uh, and making connections between things that might not seem obvious, like, say, the hoax and race. I tried to understand the yeah. ways that uh, the idea of race was central to the idea of the hoax and making it up, and that both were these kind of fake things that have real effects in the world. Can um, we dive into that a little bit? Sure. Because you um, you start with P.T. Barnum. Yeah. And you carry it all the way through to um, our previous president. I carry it to the present day, I think. Yeah. And, yeah, try to understand the ways that what's happening now has to do with the past. Yeah. There was one observation you had that was so interesting to me, which was around A Million Little Pieces, that memoir by James Fry, where he said he was recovering from addiction and had done time in prison. Yeah, yeah, no, and he'd been in jail maybe a couple hours. You know, I think one of the things about that the hoax, and I trace it back to Barnum, is that it was so dependent on race. Barnum's first big uh, hoax was that he said that he had George Washington's nursemaid, and he displayed her. Joyce Heth was her name. He, he probably took out teeth of hers to make her look older. He claimed she was 161 years old. And um, people came out of everywhere to to touch her, to physically touch the hem of the garment that touched our founding father. And so to understand that need to to fictionalize around her, but also to make her a black figure, who he probably had 
bought and uh, enslaved himself uh, is really troubling because you get to see the ways that this fakery is dependent on race. And then after she died, because she uh, probably from exposure, he conducted an autopsy uh, in public, charged admission, and then revealed what he already knew, that she was of normal advanced age. And so that kind of intimate, I own even your body and I own race and I even own your story, but also tying that story to what was, I think, seen by many as this incredible survival, this incredible moment, this incredible connection to the first president is really powerful. And to be here, you know, close to the monument is a way sort of what uh, I think Barnum was trying to get at is that this was central to the story of Washington, to the founding of the nation. Race was right there with it. What's also interesting about that is that how long the lines were and that people were willing to and excited to shell out their own money oh, yeah. to see a thing that they must have known could not be true. He was great at, you know, not only revealing something that would be part of the hoax, but also saying, see for yourself. You know, one of the things I think he did is made every visitor, every viewer, every American an expert, you know, and you could get to decide for yourself. We love that. And we you have love to pay being for experts. yourself. Yeah. Um, as he said, every crowd has a silver lining. And, and that kind of saying, I think, is very much what he was interested in. Why do we love a hoax? I think one reason we love a hoax is because it tells us a story we wish were true, uh-huh. um, sometimes about belonging, oftentimes about horrors we wish were true, sometimes about survival, but they're all often tied into race. Or uh, we wanted to believe that Lance Armstrong's lungs were somehow different than ours. Mm-hmm. And on looking back on it and looking at the ways that hoaxes often do this, it seems, you know, such an obvious falsehood. Um, but we want to kind of believe that because we want to believe both that someone's different than us, but also that we could be different. And so I think that quality of yearning is, is tied up in the hoax. And that goes to this idea of, are you different or not? Is there something fundamentally different about the two of us? Goes back to this idea of like, there's a larger head and a smaller head and all this baloney about like (laughs) deep biological difference. The advance of the hoax is tied into the advance of race science, which of course is a fiction, but that kind of pseudoscience, I think, I see, you know, my book came out in 2017. It's almost more rampant now. Questions about science, questions about race, questions about who belongs and who doesn't. These are all a long American story. And what I think is powerful is if we tell the full story, it helps us understand. One of the things I've come to say is we're not in unprecedented times, we're in precedented ones. And uh, one of the wonderful things I think about the National Museum of African American History and Culture is the ways that we tell those stories uh, from 100 years ago, and we tell the story of the Tulsa race massacre, and then it helps us think about the racial unrest that is with us now. Uh, We tell about these moments that were, you know, in a pandemic 100 years ago, and now we're trying to wrestle with some of the same questions. Another thing that Brian Stevenson told me to ask you was why is it important to show the violence, and in particular around Emmett Till. Emmett Till, as people probably recall, was a young black kid in the 50s who maybe whistled at a white woman and yeah, then at I the end of her life, she happened. At, yeah, at the end of her life, she said yeah. he didn't whistle. Yeah, I think um, 
Well, there's many things. Uh, and I think one of the things we've been entrusted with is Emmett Till's casket. And to have Mamie Till Mobley entrust us with that, which we restored, and now is on display, and you can't take photos there, but it's one of the most powerful parts of the museum. It's the heart of what we understand. I remember lining up with my son, who was the same age as Till was when he was murdered, um, to see it. And in a way, you're reproducing that same experience that those who Mamie Till insisted see in Chicago, what they had done to her baby, people lined up to see Emmett Till in an open casket and what the lynching had done to his body, um, but not his spirit. And I think that's what's really powerful is you feel both when you're in that space, is you feel Mamie Till Mobley's spirit, her resilience, her insistence, and you can't go in that space and not be transformed. And to line up with my son when George Floyd is being killed and others are facing death, it was really powerful. And that story echoes down through the decades. I edited an anthology of African-American poetry, and it has a number of poems to tell, including my own. But what I think is most powerful is there could have been 50 more I included, because this was yeah. such a transformative moment for the society, and it was reflected by the poets, um, who often were first to write about Till and what he meant. Uh, someone like Gwendolyn Brooks, who's of course living in Chicago at the time, just writes so powerfully about it. We see Rosa Parks, whose words are on the wall in the memorial room, um, talk about how Till's murder transformed her and made her want to be part of what eventually was the Montgomery bus boycott. So those kinds of transformations are central and must be shown because they were part of history. They're part of why uh, the civil rights movement was going on and why it still continues. And also it proves the point of the museum, which is to say that the reason why Emmett Till's murder and lynching and disfigurement was so impactful was because it was seen. Yes. And so to see things is to internalize them in a new way and you know, it just makes me think about photojournalism and art and museums sure. and spoken word and hip hop. Like, it has to circulate in order to have impact. I say in this poem that I have to Emmett Till called Money Road, which was the road that led to where he was taken from. There are things that can't be seen but must be. And that kind of paradox of you can't, you know, it's hard to see that, but you must. And I think that's part of the power of the museum. It's part of the power of witnessing, uh, which I think is central to history, because to be a witness, you don't just have to see something, you have to say something. And that's what Mamie Till Mobley was doing in that moment, is, is witnessing. And there's a long church history of witnessing uh, in the black church mm -hmm. that I think understands that in, in such a profound spiritual way, that it's a vigil that she was setting for all of us. Mm -hmm. And that continues, I think. And this museum um, has that kind of quality of witness, of testimony, mm -hmm. of testament. Those are all part of the centrality of the museum. Coming up next, Kevin describes this incredible soaring feeling you get inside the museum and of course, the importance of recognizing living history. We'll be right back. When you're hiring for your small business, you want quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than, wait for it, a billion professionals. 
which makes it the best place on earth to hire the right people. It gives you access to applicants you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and totally intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have this many qualified candidates right at your fingertips. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn Jobs just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash kelly. That's linkedin.com slash kelly to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan. And before I pick back up with Kevin Young, the director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C., I just wanted to put in a plug to try to get there, try to walk those halls and floors yourself. It is an incredible space where every inch has been thoroughly considered. And it really is as much about the horrors of slavery as it is about the joys and achievements of an entire community of people, Beyonce and Jay-Z and Toni Morrison and Colson Whitehead and Obama and Colin Powell and Aretha Franklin. I mean, it's just mind-boggling, honestly, what they have collected and curated and put together to tell a more complete story of America. All right, let's pick back up with Director Young. It's funny, I'm thinking about um, the therapy culture that's popped up and how newly aware people are about how important it is to be seen and heard and, <laughs> you know, to to be a, to get a witness, to have a witness mm. to whatever you've been through, whatever has happened to you. That's sort of a newly popular idea in the broader culture that okay. may help people understand why we have to do this, why we have to take in really hard material. But I also think uh, what we've done is create that full context so you understand the ways that Jet Magazine publishing those pictures was just as important as Mamie Till Mobley saying, here is my son, look what they've done. And, um, you know, what we also have to remember is the perpetrators of this crime got off scot-free. They told and sold their story mere hours later to a national magazine. You know, there was very much part of not just Black history, American history, and also kind of popular history, the history of magazines and the ways that they told stories sometimes and popularized them. It was a real turning point for Jet Magazine to tell that story. And, you know, we have the Johnson Publishing Company archives, which we share with other institutions as part of our collection. And so I think of the ways that that testament continues. And we're, we're going to learn more and more as we start to explore those archives. Everyone who I know who has been here talks about the sensation of rising Mm -hmm. from the bottom to the top. Can you describe that for people who haven't been here? (laughs) That rising is really important. Um, I call it that soaring feeling you get in the museum. You make your way, um, you know, from the past. And there's even that descent in the beginning from the elevator, which we also translated into the Surgical Museum. It was very important to have that moment of transition. We sometimes don't have that or allow ourselves to have that these days. We're running from here to there. But to take a moment and go back in time and see the accompanying dates that are taking us back there to a time before enslavement, that was really important for the museum. 
Why was it important to share? Because that we have to understand what it meant to be African in the continent before enslavement. We want to also understand the moment of that contact and what that transformed, uh, transformed the world and and changed societies, including the United States. And each one of these societies had slightly different kinds of slavery, but the chattel slavery that was invented in those moments is so fundamentally different. Uh, it's, you know, the kind of thing that it's inherited, it's passed down, it's located in a specific body and specific skin color. Uh, it's accompanied by great violence and sexual violence. It's accompanied by horrors that, uh, as we're saying, you know, have existed forever, but are focused and fundamental and are side by side with us saying, we want to be a free nation. Well, I mean, I remember coming across this section of cast that talked about how the Nazis so admired the way that we did these lynchings. Well, in Jim Crow, a lot of these systems I think were so effective in their way because we have to remember they were legal. There was also the custom parts of it. For instance, I grew up in Topeka, Kansas, in part where the famous Brown versus Topeka board case is from. And in fact, Linda Brown, the sort of symbolic center, the little girl in the case, played piano in my church. And Reverend Brown, who filed the case, he was one of many plaintiffs and being B was first, Brown the board is so important because it transformed us. It began this process of desegregation. But also for me personally, there I am in the vestibule of the church. We would be a little late sometimes. Uh, and there was Reverend Brown's picture and he had preached in that church before my time. And so yeah. to see that connection, that history was living was really important. And it's important now to help people understand this history is still with us. I think of it all the time in the ways that living history means that history is with us, but we're also living through history on how do we connect to now. And what I'm finding is people want that connection. You can't even keep up with the wear and tear. There's so many people who want to come There's through There's so building. many people who want to be here, yeah. And we've been really fortunate to open in this moment and open safely and have people come through and, and see. And people are you know, the first day when we opened uh, in May 2021, I literally got to open the door. And, you know, these young ladies from Texas were there. This family was there whose uh, daughter was the first uh, female officer to die in the front. And they donated her material here. So, And this was a family. You know, it wasn't, it was her sisters and brothers and uh, parents and, and uh, kinfolk. Yeah. And so to see up close, they've been waiting, literally. They've been waiting for us to reopen, to all take this pilgrimage. And what I find is that so many people see us as that, a place of pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And um, to see the ways that, for me, history was right in front of me singing, uh, and then to be here, while it's singing all around us. It's a giant chorus. is really powerful. I remember um, Stevie Wonder at the opening ceremony, sang this song like, where is our love song? Where is the song that we will sing for love? It's kind of like that. It's kind of like this is one big love song. <laughs> it is. And, you know, love songs sometimes are sad, you know, but they're also transformative. Um, we're here in this gallery with our latest show, Reckoning, and we're sitting in between these two portraits, one of Harriet Tubman by Bisa Butler, I will go to prepare a place for you, and the portrait of Breonna Taylor by Amy Sherald, and to see the ways that across these 
centuries, really, they're looking at each other, but they were both made in the past year, you know, and to see that this art, and I think it's important to say these black women artists making art of these black figures, these black women figures, is really transformative. And they're taking history and they're helping us understand it and see it again and see it anew. Yeah. So I think that the the idea of this was approved in 1929. Yeah. By Hoover. Yeah, it was. And, Some uh, number of decades later? <laughs> uh, you know, um, it's a little like Juneteenth. You know, it was a couple years afterwards, you find right. out the news. Um, but actually, I think the Great Depression impacted whether that was going to be built as a memorial then. Um, and then it took many decades with John Lewis introducing this legislation before it was realized. With a Republican, back yeah. when that happened. It's very back important when people with Senator Brumbeck. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, I think that's really important, that nature of the museum. It was built by an understanding amongst us all that this was central and important to telling the American story. And tell me more, we'd like to give everybody a chance to shout somebody out. It's called sure. Plus One, and it's a way of revealing the very true fact, which is that we are all influencing each other all the time. So who's your plus one? <laughs> it's so hard to pick. I mean, what I a powerful and great question. I, I think I'd have to think about someone I think about a lot who's Fannie Lou Hamer, Mm. the amazing figure who um, not only formed the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, who um, has that great quote, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, Mm -hmm. a feeling we might have shared, who used music as part of her revolution, part of her understanding, singing the spirituals and gospel songs as freedom songs. But also I'm interested in her activity after that, um, the ways that she helped found the Freedom Farm Cooperative, which was commonly known as a pig bank. Basically, she would you could buy a pig, you would um, raise the pigs, you would give back to the pig bank. It was a way of huh. uh, asserting agricultural and uh, economic independence. She bought 40 acres, sounds familiar, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and created this cooperative. Uh, and it was successful for a few years. And I think it's really important to think about the ways that she wasn't just transforming uh out in the world or in politics, she was also transforming and seeking to transform the land, the the very thing that uh, folks knew but also didn't own, weren't able to grow on successfully because of the systems of sharecropping. Um, And these are systems that are found in my family, you know, and to see her resilience, but also her inventiveness. This is in 69 and 70. This isn't forever ago. Right. You know, and that's what we have to remember. This is part of our living history and the ways that food is part of that self-determination for her. Yeah. But there's other one other thing I would say about Fannie Lou Hamer, which is that recently in uh, the internets, uh, going around on Twitter, I think, was a picture of her laughing with her husband. Yeah. And, and someone was trying to remind us of the ways that these civil rights leaders, these important freedom fighters, were also people who experienced joy. And I think very much about this quote by Toy Derricotte, joy is an act of resistance. Uh-huh. And that kind of resistance, I think, is really important because joy is part of that story. Yeah, it's also, it reminds me a little bit of um, people posting uh, color photographs of MLK <laughs> instead of always sure. in black and white and trying to remind us that it, he wasn't just this heroic person up there. Sure. He was also like a guy 
in living color, if you will. Sure, yeah. One of the things I showed in my previous job at the Schomburg Center was a show that included some of Malcolm X's home movies and him right. going to Egypt, you know, filming himself on a camel at the right. uh, pyramids, exploring what he saw, and rightly so, as the heart of civilization, but also the heart of his understanding Africa as a continent and as part of his transformation. But to see him with a camera and to realize right. he's a photographer, right. like he's making images for himself, but for posterity in some ways, um, how do we understand folks in their off hours? How do we understand mm. King at rest? Yeah, I think everybody should be photographed like eating a bologna sandwich, <laughs> just to like bring it down to earth, you know, or dancing. But, or... but and again, uh, food is so important to these stories we're telling and, and that we need to tell. Well, it also points us, like it reduces the abstraction because it's so corporal. Yeah, it's, when we all do it, you know, we all have right. to sustain ourselves. But, you know, for black folks, food is, isn't just sustaining the body, you know, and that connection, that inventiveness, right. the story food tells. I got off the elevator and was on this very floor just over uh, a few feet from where we're sitting and seeing the kind of pot, the exact pot that my grandmother made yeah. gar stew in. You know, gar is a terrible, like, bottom feeder fish, um, but it was delicious. I remember eating it and right. saying, what is this delicious fish? Right. You know, what was she going to say? And she says, gar. You know, it's like yeah. the cheapest thing. And I was like, oh, it's about transformation. But to see that pot sitting there in the case, I mean, it just changed me. It helped me see myself and see other people in the museum in ways that I think people do every day. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. What's the shadow book? It's an idea I was really interested in in the Gray Album and still uh, I think about, which is, that we have to understand not just what's there, the archives, the artifacts that you find in this museum, which wasn't built when I was writing this, but also the things that aren't there. Some mm -hmm. of them are things that used to be there, things like Ralph Olson's second novel, which uh, burned in a fire in part, and he didn't quite finish, and you know now since has been published in different forms, but doesn't exist in that same way. And I was trying to understand the ways that we have to understand what's missing as much as we have to understand what's there. And that we also have to understand that this book isn't always literal. It's the things we don't hear from our grandparents, the question we didn't get answered. Uh, and it goes out the door when an elder dies. There's that saying that when an elder dies, a library is burned. And there's something in that that I was trying to understand in this idea of the shadow book. Yeah, and it's not even literal. Like, there's, there's things that don't get made because sure. people are in circumstances that don't allow for for that. Well, and like my one of my mentors was the terrific poet Lucille Clifton mm. and she uh writes <laughs> writes she picked my first book. I wouldn't be here without wow. her. But I think one of the things that's so great about uh Lucille Clifton is she captures this sense about her mother for instance who wrote poems as well and that uh she burned because her father didn't approve of them. So her husband didn't approve of them. She went and burns them very kind of dramatically. And I just think of a little Lucille seeing this and then writing herself uh, and writing also her mother yeah. for generations. Yeah. Yeah, and I just feel like the, the lives that get um, derailed because we don't educate people properly or because they the education sort of winnows down and then there's very few people actually going to college and getting all that good stuff poured into their heads such that they can do the kinds of stuff that you're doing? Well, I see it as a legacy for me. I mean, I, 
had grandparents who didn't get a chance to be educated, but they were educated in other ways. Uh, uh-huh, and there, uh-huh. and my great, uh, my grandmother is still with us. She's 98. Um, and so uh, I think of all that knowledge she has, um, and some of which I've been able to ask her about. What's your grandma's name? Her name is Annie Barfield. Annie Barfield, this one's for you. <laughs> so do you have a favorite part of the museum? Just get you every time. Yeah, the uh, mothership from Parliament Funkadelic. Oh, my God. It used to descend from the ceiling. Sure. And it still feels like it's about to rise up and take us off <laughs> into uh, wherever we need to go. And you're a music fanatic. Like, you're a Prince guy. Uh, afraid so. Guilty yeah. as charged. I mean, who isn't? I mean, Prince is so great. He taught me so much about how to tell a story, how to uh, make a metaphor, how to fall in love uh, and yeah. have some fun. And, you know, if you haven't danced to 1999... As the millennium's turning, you haven't lived. Um, Okay, so that'll take us right into the speed round. What was your first concert? So I I was trying to remember. I think I saw a concert with Fishbone was the headliner, and the Beastie Boys were under them. (laughs) Wow. So it was like an early Beastie Boys before their record was (laughs) out. Yes, and I have a poem about Fishbone in a book of mine called Brown. Oh, that's great. I loved Brown. Um, Best live performance you've ever seen? That's a tough one. I mean, I think it might be Prince uh, in Atlanta at the Fox Theater. Yeah, last book that blew you away. I think there's so many great books. I really love uh, some of my friends' books. Tracy K. Smith just had her beautiful selected poems come out. Just um, blows me away to see uh, that book. And I helped pick her first book. So um, to see her now well beyond anything I could have dreamed or, uh, and I knew her uh, when we were both in college. So to see her be a poet laureate and a Pulitzer Prize winner, and now she's at yeah. Harvard where we started out is wonderful. That's cool. If your high school did superlatives. They did. What would you have been most likely to become? What did you become? think I was? I was most likely something. Most likely? I wasn't most likely. I was most something. Most I was, musical. I was best dressed. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I, sh- I should have seen it from a mile away. Kevin Young, best dressed. Uh, what's your go-to mantra for hard times? You know, I, I think that I really do return to Toni Morrison and her her idea that the function of freedom is to free someone else. And I think about that a lot, especially here in the museum. Is there anyone you would like to apologize to? I don't know. I mean, I'd love to uh, sit down and chat with my dad again. There's nothing to apologize for. I think uh, that's one thing you learn as you get older. You forgive everything. And there was nothing to forgive in the beginning. It's just I would love to see him again and just, you know, watch a dumb movie and kick back together. When was the last time you cried? Probably talking or thinking about my dad. (laughs) My dad. Um, If you could pass one law or overturn one Supreme Court case. I mean, that's a great question. I think we're in such an important moment where uh, our gains from, say, uh, the Voting Rights Act are so important and crucial. And this museum is full of that struggle for the vote um, to get that inalienable right. And so I think continuing that and continuing that story of how we must uh, protect the vote and people have lived and died for the vote. Yeah, if your mother wrote a book about you, <laughs> what would it be called? She just might yet, so I'm uh-huh. not going to give her any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> if you could say four words to anyone, who would you address and what would you say? I think I would, uh, it's almost a way of, of talking to, if not my son, then our sons and daughters and children, which is, you know, let's get there together. Let's continue this process of 
freeing ourselves and freeing each other. Uh, I think it's so important to continue that and raise that up. And I look ahead to the young generation and the ways they are free and easy with each other about some of these very difficult things, um, but also the ways they're hungry for the things we have in the museum, for understanding, for understanding where we've been and looking ahead. And so that's what I would say. Let's get there together. It's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Here are some of my takeaways from my conversation with Kevin Young. Number one, enslaved people danced and sang and told stories in code. Every word held a dream, a promise, and sometimes a plan. Number two, we want to believe a hoax because we want to believe there's an exception to the rule. Number three, rarely are we in uncharted territory. The COVID-19 pandemic looked a lot like the Spanish flu in 1918, and the fight for civil rights in the 50s and 60s looks a lot like protests against police brutality in the summer of 2020. Number four, to be a witness, you don't just have to see something, you have to say something. Number five, joy is an act of resistance. Number six, when an elder dies, a library is burned. Number seven, what we save, what we share, what we display is who we are. It's the story of our lives. And when those objects are collected and displayed in 400,000 square feet in Washington, D.C., we are telling the story of what matters to us. I want to thank PBS and all the PBS stations across the country who have added Tell Me More to their schedules. Of course, you can stream Tell Me More anytime on pbs.org slash Kelly. I'd also like to thank the John Templeton Foundation for supporting the PBS show and so much of this work. I want to thank Gordon and Luli Gund, who have been so generous in helping us get the PBS show off the ground. I work closely with someone named Caroline Kinsey, who helps me prepare for every PBS interview along with Katie Hodgman. Of course, I want to thank Kevin Young for sitting down to talk to me, for teaching me, for being the world's best tour guide. I want to thank the team at Kelly Corgan Wonders. That's technical producer Dean Kateri, producer Tammy Stedman, intern Margaret Faust, who edited today's interview, along with Garrett Peters, who mixed it. I also want to thank Cece Clark and Maddie Malin, two more interns. We just crossed 4 million downloads to date, and I wanted to thank you all for listening and sharing these episodes and rating and reviewing us on whatever podcast app you use to listen. It really helps, and it makes us feel great. We'll be back on Friday with a new For the Good of the Order and on Sunday with a new episode of Thanks for Being Here. Hey, I have a quick favor to ask. We are conducting a survey to get to know you, our audience, better. It won't take long and it's easy to find. Visit survey.prx.org slash Kelly. That's survey.prx.org slash Kelly. Thank you.